0: Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerizines. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Jesus, certainly there are men and women in this room who know how much you've done for them. God, there are those of us who are still trying to wrap our minds around it. God, and there's people in this room possibly who don't know what you have done for them, don't know what the fuss is about. Lord, don't know Jesus. And God, we ask... You, by Your Spirit today, that You would teach all of us, Lord, wherever we are, wherever we come from, whatever our weeks have been like, whatever our lives have been like, Lord, there is a promise in this text that our past will not dictate our future, but in faith in Christ, You will dictate our future, Lord. You stand between who we were and who we will become. Who we were is no more. Who we will be is secure in Christ, and it's by Your Spirit that You accomplish that. And so, God, today... I just pray, Lord, even as we read this text, there may be a whole host of differences of opinions and fears and insecurities and anxieties, even just being in this room. And so, God, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus, you would just calm our hearts, that you would calm our minds, that you would calm our souls, Lord, that you would make us attentive to your word and that you would teach us. God, we want to hear from you. Lord, no one here wants to hear from a man. We want to hear... From your Holy Spirit today, so teach us, Lord, encourage us, convict us, and be glorified in all that we say and think and do. We ask it in Jesus' name, Amen. There was a season in uh, early on in my Christian life when I became fascinated, obsessed with the ideas and, and the stories that I had been hearing about the demonic realm. I'd had conversations with people who didn't know each other, who seemed to tell the same stories. They seemed to describe their experiences in the same way. And as a young believer, I remember thinking, gosh, I wish I could witness something like that. But it wasn't a desire from faith. It was actually a desire from doubt. You see, I thought that if God would let me see the evidence of the demonic, that it would actually uh, 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 do away with my doubts in God. It would actually convince me that God was real. It wasn't a desire from faith. It was a desire from doubt. And in fact, as we'll talk about a little bit later, it was a desire from complete ignorance on my part. So we live in in a time and a place where the majority of people in our culture are willfully ignorant of the spiritual realm. See, it's not true in other parts of the world. It's not true in times past in the world. Other parts of the world and in in times past, they readily acknowledged the, the part that the spiritual realm plays in everyday life. But in 21st century Western America, we are enlightened We know better than that. We don't don't pay attention to the elementary spirits of the world. We don't pay attention to that kind of of, uh, just ignorance, right? We are enlightened people. And so we don't recognize how it plays a part in everyday life. And in this hiddenness, in this ignorance, we can make two mistakes, two equal but opposite errors. We can ignore the spiritual realm. We can ignore the demonic. We can pretend that it doesn't exist or we can call it something different. We can't do that. We can't ignore it. Scripture is clear. It's real. But the other mistake that we make is that we can obsess over it. And look for demons behind every rock and tree. We can blame Satan for everything and we just obsess over it. It's interesting in our culture. There's times we pretend like it doesn't exist and yet look at the horror film industry. We're obsessing over it. We're glamorizing it. It draws a crowd So both of these are errors. We actually, when we ignore it, we pretend it doesn't exist or we obsess over it, we're actually more focused on the evidences of evil in the world than we are the evidences of grace and goodness, the evidences of Christ in the world. And so the solution to the demonic problem in the world is not to ignore it. It's not to obsess over it. It's to fix our eyes upon Jesus and to be watchful for evidences of grace and for the power of God and to walk in Christ's victory. We are mindful of this reality. We are mindful of the works of the enemy, but we are not fearful of them. And see, when we look to this text, and we focus on the demonic, there's all kinds of questions that can come to mind. We can be fascinated by it. how did this happen? Who is this guy? What's, you know, what's, what's really going on there? How does the, 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 the spiritual realm uh, relate to mental illness? And we can ask all of these questions. But Mark's intention in this story is not to teach us about the inner workings of the demonic realm. He's, he's not trying to get us to focus on the demonic. Rather, it's to teach us about the kingdom of God and the authority of Jesus over the demonic realm. And so, As we'll see last week, for those of you who are here, Jesus, he calms the storm at at the sea, the chaos on the waters. And the disciples asked, what kind of man is this? And that question rings through the text. What kind of man can also do the things that only God can do? But in our text, the question that reigns is, what does this man have to do with us? What kind of man is Jesus? And what has Jesus to do with us? See, every single one of us is going to need to ask these two questions in our lives. Who is Jesus? What kind of man can calm the storm at sea? And what does he have to do with me? There are two types of people that are confronted with these questions in this text. And what we'll learn by looking at them is that each and every one of us has an opportunity today to experience the presence and the power of Jesus. And the first group that we're going to talk about are those who feel that they are too lost. Maybe you're here today. And because of things in your life or because of decisions that you've made or because of things that have been done against you, maybe you're here and you're thinking, I'm too broken, I'm too far off, I've been cast aside, I am too lost. See, this man who rushes Jesus from the tombs, is an example of extreme lostness. Now, I am a baseball fan, and so I know that three strikes and you're out. This man actually has six strikes against him. He is out twice. He is so extremely lost, according to the culture. He doesn't have just one unclean spirit. He has a legion of defiling spirits. He is unclean according to the Jewish culture and tradition. He is living among the tombs. It, was, it would make a, a person unclean to come in contact with a dead body or with a tomb. And so living among the tombs, he has chosen a home of uncleanness. Now, unclean doesn't mean sinful, but it does mean ceremonially separated from God. This man is unclean. He is separated from God living among the tombs. The tombs are located in a part of the country where there were pig pig herding going on. Pigs were unclean animals. The Jewish people couldn't come in contact with pigs. They were unclean. He's cutting himself, and so he's bleeding to come in contact with the flow of blood, the source of life would make somebody unclean. This man is unclean. To, to live this kind of life in this culture would mean that he was either a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, or he was an apostate Jew. He had turned his back on the God of Israel, again making him unclean, cut off, separated from God. And to boot, he's naked. He is unclean, 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 unclean. This man is the extreme case. He, according to Jewish culture and tradition, is cut off from God. He is without hope and he is without any, anyone's ability to help him. He's beyond help. And so while we don't know what led to this condition... The assumption would be that this man has led such a life of sin, such a life of rebellion. His life was so full of pain and wounds and rejection that God apparently has abandoned him to his fate. He is cut off from God. And we find out as Jesus engages with him that it's not just an unclean spirit, but it's a legion of unclean spirits that torments this man. Now, a legion was the largest unit in the Roman military. It could consist of up to 6,000 foot soldiers and 1,200 chariots. And so, though there is one man in front of Jesus, he's He's cast a demon out of a man before we saw that in the earlier chapters in Mark in the synagogue. That's, that's, no, that's, that's no problem for Jesus. A man with one spear, that's nothing. Mark here is upping the ante by showing that in this one man in front of Jesus in our passage, there stands an entire army of Satan's demons arrayed against Jesus. In the text, there's a man, but behind that is a legion of, of spiritual evil, but nothing can stand in Jesus' way. Nothing can stop him. Just as easily as casting out one demon, he can cast out an entire militia. And so while we can assume that this man's past is full of pain, Jesus doesn't allow that to interfere with his purposes for this man. Though it may be full of sin, he doesn't allow the sin to interfere with his purposes for this man. He does not allow his past to interfere with his future. And isn't this good news for us? Jesus will not allow your past to interfere with your future. It has no grounds, it has no authority over you. Whatever has been in your past, whatever you've done, whatever you have believed, no matter how extreme or vile it is, no matter what your current state of affairs, your current relationship is with Jesus, no matter how much you have opposed God in your life, your past will not have the last word. Jesus will not allow it to interfere with the future that he desires for you, this is good news. Nobody is too far from grace. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, if you've been coming to church for a while, you've heard that before. Hopefully. If not, hear it. No one is too far from grace. Nobody is too far from grace. Now, maybe you're here and you're like, I know that. I've been a Christian for a long time. I know I've received grace. But maybe you're here and you go, okay. I know my sin before I met Jesus is covered, but then I met Jesus, and then I sinned, and you know, sometimes those sins, like I actually have more shame over them, they're actually worse than the things that I was doing. What if if your after Jesus is more sinful than your before Jesus? Why, I just have to tell you, your past will not interfere with Jesus' future for you. Whether that past is pre-Jesus or after Jesus, we can be confident that the Scriptures are true. That if while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, then how much more will we receive grace now that he calls us friends? You were an enemy of Jesus and he forgave you. Now you're a friend of Jesus and your past will not interfere with the future that Jesus desires for you. If you belong to Jesus through faith, then your future is guaranteed. Your future is certain. Nobody is too far from grace, no matter what your past looks like, if you trust in Christ. I met a man probably around 2011, 2012, when I was a pastor at Reality LA, who had devoted his life to worshiping Satan. He, he, he knew the gospel from a young age, he knew about Jesus, but there came a time in his life when he decided what he really wanted in life was to have power over people. Specifically, he wanted power over women. And so he prayed, he sat down and he said, in my mind, I prayed to Jesus and to Satan. I said, whichever one of you will give me this power, him I will serve. And Satan made it abundantly clear to him that he was willing to give him this power and so he devoted his life to not just like the culture of goth and stuff, no, literally, consciously, willingly worshiping the devil. Until he realized That it was not him who had power over people, but that Satan had power over him and he decided that he didn't like living like that anymore. And so he asked Jesus to save him and that's when all hell broke loose in his life. Literally, all hell started breaking loose. The day I met him, At Reality LA, it was the second set of worship after the sermon and he was on the ground in the back of the sanctuary, writhing and screaming and speaking in other voices and just hell was breaking loose in his life. And so uh, a group of us came to him and escorted him to a quiet place. And I asked him, I said, hey man, what's going on? And he said, just some demons that have been with me for a long time are finally leaving. And we asked him his story. He knew the gospel. He wanted to believe in Jesus. But ever since he tried to put his faith in Jesus, he started having these crazy demonic manifestations and didn't know what to do about it. And so we talked to him and we said, hey, can we pray for you? And he said, yeah, please pray for me. And I said, can I lay my hand on your shoulder? And he said, yeah, please do. And so I put my hand on his shoulder and before I could get the name of Jesus out of my mouth, it happened again. Flailing, screaming, speaking in other voices. Five of us had to hold this guy to the ground as we were praying. Now I was fresh out of Bible college. I had had heard about this. I I told you I'd even wanted to see a situation like this. And so I'm like, I've read about this. Let's go. You know, so we jumped down. I start praying and this guy tore me piece from piece, looked me in the eyes, taunted me, mocked me and absolutely destroyed me. And in this moment, I looked around this group of us. There's about 30 people in the room at this point, looked at, I was totally defeated. And I locked eyes with a friend of mine and he just started praying. And I sat there and I repented. I said, God, I've been trying to do this. I can't, I can't do this. I need you to do this. You need to show up. God, if you don't do something, this guy is going to leave like this. If you don't do something, he is going to leave captive. If you don't do something, this man is never going to experience freedom. God, you need to do something. I can't do this. And in this moment of surrender, as quickly as that man hit the floor, the Holy Spirit rushed in and cast out every last demon out of this man. I'm going to tell you, the scriptures are true. Church, the scriptures are true. When when this happened, I thought we killed him. Paul says that they fell as though dead. I thought we killed this man. He fell on the ground and, and was lifeless for what felt like 30 seconds. It was probably like a half a second. And I have never seen worship like I've seen in that moment. This man shot up and said, praise Jesus, they're all gone. Oh, Jesus, thank you, Lord, they're all gone. Oh. And just worshiping in the middle of this public high school library where Reality LA met. And just worshiping in this place. No matter what your past, I don't care what it is. I don't care if you have practiced witchcraft, been involved in the occult. I don't, I, it, whatever is in your past, Jesus sets the captives free. It's not going to have any power over you. You come to Jesus, he will set you free. It's not the work of an individual person. It's not the work of, 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 of a group of people. It is the work of Jesus. By the power of his Holy Spirit, he can set you free today from whatever it is this man in our text is is who is influenced by this legion asks jesus a question he runs out of the tombs falls at jesus feet and says what have you to do with me jesus son of the most high god if you are here and you are feeling that you are too lost too broken by sin, too broken by the sins of others. You've been too resistant to Jesus in the past. Maybe there's a particular sin or lifestyle that you feel like Jesus will never forgive. Maybe you've been involved in in the stuff that the man I just told you about was, was in. Maybe you're asking how Jesus possibly could desire anything to do with you. You need to hear this good news today, that Jesus sets the captives free. That he loves you, he wants to save you, that whatever is oppressing you, whatever is afflicting you, whatever is causing anxiety and fear and pain in your life, he wants to set you free. See, this man represents extreme lostness, someone who would never believe that God would desire anything to do with him beyond hope and beyond help. But there's another group of people in this text that we can identify with. Those who know who Jesus is, have seen what he can do, but have never given their lives to him because they might not be too lost, but they feel they have too much to lose. Maybe what's standing in your way of freedom is not feeling like you are cut off from God, but maybe feeling that you have too much to lose. Notice that Jesus, um, in here, it's not—it's not just knowing about Jesus. It's not just having some intellectual knowledge, or even just witnessing Jesus' power. It's not the same. Knowing about Jesus is not the same as actually knowing Jesus and experiencing his power, his love, and his grace, and so Jesus invites you today, not just to an intellectual knowledge of him. See, we live in the Western world, and we like definitions and knowledge, and and, and, and well, lots of people today have different opinions about truth, but we, we, we like to know, and we, we put what we know and what we believe against everyone else's, whether it's spiritual beliefs, religious beliefs, political beliefs, whatever it is, I'm right you're wrong and we can turn faith in Jesus into that we can say well I know the truth I've seen the truth I've seen the power I believe that Jesus is the son of the most high God just like this demon did the demon knows but that doesn't But that doesn't mean that he belongs to him. He knows and has rejected him. And so Jesus invites us to experience not just the knowledge of something, but he invites us to experience his presence and his power in all aspects of life. And and with that sometimes comes sacrifice. Every time. Let's be honest. Every time it comes with sacrifice. But like the demons in this scene, instead of submitting to Jesus... We can sometimes try to make a deal with Jesus. Have you ever tried to make a deal with Jesus? Right, like the demons do. They say, we say like, I'll give you this if you let me keep that, right? The, the, the demons say, we'll leave this man so long as you let us go into the pigs, right? I've, I've done this, right? Maybe there's, there's a part, uh, places in your life that you keep hidden and, and apart from your faith in Jesus. Jesus, I'll give you this, but this thing over here isn't that bad, right? Just Just, eh, just ignore that. Right, I'll give you my Sundays, but I'm going to live however I want, Monday through Saturday. Right, I'll give you my mind, but I'm going to maintain the right to use my body however I want. I'll give you my time, but I'm using my money to build my kingdom. I'll give you my verbal praise, but I'm going to keep my heart devoted to myself. Right, we can try to strike a deal with Jesus, but you need to hear this. Jesus is not interested in making a deal with you. He's not not trying to trade something for something. He's trying to trade his life for your life. He's trying to give you his everything so that you will give him your everything. He's trying to give you his righteousness so that you'll give up your sin. He's trying to give you his image of, of the divine son, glory of God in the flesh to make you conform to his image, but you've got to give up this image you're trying to make for yourself. He is not willing to make a deal with you. He wants to give all of himself and all that that entails, but it requires that we let go of ourselves. Whether you're here and you're a believer or not, Jesus doesn't ask two different things from you. He doesn't ask one thing from believers and one thing from non-believers. He asks us all of everything. Give everything. Give your life as I have given my life for you. Ultimately, you see this attitude of having too much to lose from the townspeople who witness a legitimate miracle, right? This man who's been terrorizing their community has been set free. Think about it. This wasn't just some random guy. Think of how this man was described and how many people went out and tried to bind him with chains and shackles and tried to subdue him. And every night he's crying out and cutting himself. He's literally howling, the scriptures say. Right? These people have gone out and they've tried to subdue him. They don't, you don't go out and try to shackle and chain someone unless they are a threat to your way of life. This man is terrorizing this community and they come and they see him clean. They see him clothed. They see him in his right mind. They come from the town and they see the man. And they respond by begging Jesus to leave. See, after, after all, 2,000 pigs would be worth quite a bit of money. And they, say that Jesus, they see that Jesus coming into their community, ushering the kingdom of God into their community, it's going to bring some sacrifice. It's going to shake things up. It's going to disrupt the status quo. It's going to disrupt life as usual, and it may actually cost us to sacrifice things that we hold dear. Sadly, many people will look at the power and the presence of Jesus straight in the face and continue to choose what the world will offer. I know a story of a man who made his living as a pretty well-known comedian. And he knew the truth about Jesus. He did. He, He knew the truth. He even wanted to follow Jesus. But he knew that his career as a shock comic would be over. And so he was tormented by this decision. He knew that following Jesus would cost him his career, his friends, his, his, his love life, his, his money, his reputation. And in the end, he chose his career. He walked away from Jesus knowing what was on the table. I knew another man who desperately wanted to follow Jesus, but he uh, was pretty high up in a very famous adult magazine. And he tried to justify his career and the lifestyle that went with it until he couldn't justify it any longer, and he chose his career. For many, the question isn't, Jesus, what what have you to do with me? They know that. They know that Jesus wants to save them. They know what he's done for them. They know the answer to that question. But sometimes the question is, what have you to do with all of this? And I think each and every one of us, if we know who Jesus is, we know that he's the son of the most high God who's come to set the captives free and save us from sin and death. We look at our lives and we go, Jesus, but what about all of this? And he says, I want that too. I want all of that, all that I've given you, all that that you've experienced in life, all that you've worked for. I want that too. Not necessarily going to drown it in the sea, but I want your heart to the degree that if it does drown in the sea, nothing changes. Even if I do take it away, it's not your God. Christ is your God. Even if I choose to take it away, I want your heart to the degree that you're going to be all right with it because you know that in Christ you have something better in Matthew 13, Jesus tells a parable about the kingdom of God. He says in thir- Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. There's nothing in life that isn't worth sacrificing to have the God of the universe, to have this intimate unity with Christ. There's nothing worth allowing to stand in that way. All we cling to that keeps us from embracing Jesus is just pigs. It's swine. I'm not going to say that it's going to be easy to part with, but you have to know, you have to know that it is better to part with that and receive Jesus than anything else most important question we can ever ask is who is Jesus, right? What kind of man is this? But the next question that we have to ask is what has Jesus to do with me? So we can't miss the opportunity to identify with the characters in this story, right? Now most of us will read this and we'll go I'm not demon possessed, at least I don't think so. I'm not a lost cause. I don't feel cut off from God. What does this have to do with me? Well if we step back from the specific details Of this text, we see a pattern that outlines every story of redemption. You can find your story of redemption in this text as well. You see, you were created in the image of God. Now, though it's hidden behind uncleanness and violence and sin, the man in this text is a human being made in the image of God. And the image of God is one of the most profound truths taught in all of Scripture. Genesis 1, 26 through 27 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, in the ancient Near East, we need to understand understand this context. When a king ruled over a territory, he would set up statues of himself, images of himself throughout the kingdom. It was a reminder to the people who lived in that region who their king was. And so scripture says that you have been made in the image of God. You're like a statue of the divine creator that whoever looks at you, looks at your life, sees the way you live, should be able to point at you and say, that's what God is like. The way humanity lives and rules and subdues the world and promotes flourishing, creation should look at humanity and say, that's what God is like. That you were made in the image of God and, and as humans were to flourish in all of the earth, they were to be a reminder of God's glory, pointing to the king of the universe. This is the beauty and the dignity of all human beings, regardless of tribe, tongue, nation, or gender. You are made in the image of God, regardless of your your career, your beliefs, your marital status, your orientation, your citizenship, your age, you are made in the image of God regardless of whether or not someone has even actually yet been born. They are made in the image of God and every human being is as, as the image of God is worthy of dignity, honor, and respect, and love. You have been made with glory in mind. You are valuable, you are important, you are beautiful, you are special to God and to the people of God you may feel like you don't belong you may feel like you'll never be accepted you may look at your life and say this thing is not right and if people know they'll never accept me and that's a lie you are made in the image of God you are valuable to God you are valuable to the people of God do not let the enemy lie to you any longer you have been made with glory in mind you have been made in the image of God just like the man in this text But you see, God has an enemy, and God wants nothing more than to defile God's reputation, to to corrupt God's glory, and so he does so through his image bearers, and he wants nothing more than to corrupt the image of God in us, and so sin corrupts the image of God, but it does not eliminate the image of God in us. It's like rust on a classic car. My first car, when I was 16, was a '67 Mercury Cougar. It was an old car. I loved that car, but it had it had some rust, right? It had a bunch of rust around the window. And I'm certain, I'm, I'm 100% certain, that the person who first bought that car when they drove it off the dealership lot, that rust was not there. But weather and water and time, it was it was it was it was beginning it was beginning to rust. But you know what? Even with that rust there, it didn't become a different car still a 67 Mercury Cougar. And so, so sin is like rust on the image of God. It's a little discoloration. The paint doesn't glisten the way that it does. It, it might even start to put holes in the car, but you're still human. right? You're still a representation of the glory of God. Now this guy in our text, his, his car is almost completely rusted and rotted through. His humanity is all but lost. He's living like an animal. Think, think of this guy. He's like almost like a werewolf, right? When you think of werewolves in, in movies, he's, he's living in the tombs. He's filthy. He's uncontrollably violent. He's breaking chains. He's howling. Right? When humanity submits itself to sin, when it submits itself to evil, instead of God, we actually become like animals. So we see this in the life of Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. In an attempt to make himself like God, he wound up losing his mind and eating grass like a beast. That's the story the text is trying to tell. When we try to exalt ourselves, when we pursue our desires and our sinful desires, instead of the desires that Jesus has for us, we end up living like animals. That's exactly what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden. They wanted, they they sadly didn't know that they were already like God. They wanted to be more like God. So they rebelled against God by submitting themselves to the serpent, which they should have been ruling and subduing. And in the end, humanity is living like animals. Cain kills Abel. Right? Violence is glorified. God has to send a flood to cleanse the world. Humanity is living like animals because they're submitting themselves to sin. They're submitting themselves to evil instead of submitting themselves to God. And so this man at the Gerizines has given himself over so significantly to the influence of sin and evil that his humanity is all but lost. Likewise, the image of God in us is corrupted by sin. Though we may not experience it to the same extent, we do not reflect God as we ought. I said, everyone can find their story of redemption in this text. We were made in the image of God, but sin has corrupted that image that you've been made in. You can look at your life and know those words that we're supposed to look at each other and say, this is what God is like. Now, some of you are maybe like, yes, he is. No, no one's doing that. We look around. This is, this, I'm sorry, guys. This is not what God is like. Sin has, has tarnished that image in my life. Sin has tarnished that image in your life. See, see sin is, is allegiance to the very same powers that caused this episode in this man's life. One of the, 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 the biggest takeaways that, that, that happened after that moment I told you about in, in the library at Reality LA with that man was, I, I tried to remember as many people who were there as possible and call them the next day just to make sure they were all right. And one person said something to me that I will never forget. They said, if my sin is an allegiance with that, I want nothing to do with it. And that's exactly what it is. Our, our sin, this, this corruption in our lives is the very same corruption that led to this man's extreme case. It might not come to that with you, but it's allegiance with it. We want nothing to do with it. Our sin corrupts the image of God in us. And the more we give ourselves over to it, the more we actually lose our humanity. That's the lie of sin. It, sometimes our sin makes us feel alive, but it brings death. It's like donuts. <laughs> Guess I don't need to explain that one. <laughs> but there is good news because Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness, the saving power of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Jesus in the life of this demoniac that is put even on greater display in the cross with, with a single word, Jesus can expel a legion of demons, but on the cross, his entire life and ministry comes to a climax and he expels all of sin and unrighteousness from our lives. Satan on the cross is defeated once and for all. You see, there's an irony in this text right? The the demons try to make a, a, a deal with Jesus. They don't want to be cast from the region. We see Jesus teaching in other places in scripture that for a demon to be without a host is to wander aimlessly in waterless places. This is the torment that the demon is saying, don't torment me, Jesus. Instead, let us go into the pigs. The, the pigs were their, what they thought would be their source of salvation. If they could go into the pigs, they would be saved. They knew they were no match for Jesus. But if they could go into the pigs, they would be saved. And the pigs ended up being not their source of salvation, but their source of demise. What they thought would save them actually was the cause of their destruction as they ran down the bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. You see, in the same way, Satan believed that crucifying Jesus that killing the Son of God would be his moment of glory, he, that he believed that it would be his victory. If he didn't, he wouldn't have done it. Paul says that if he knew what he was doing, he would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Satan believed that in crucifying Jesus, that would be his moment of victory, and it was his moment of demise. It was the moment he was completely disarmed. It was the moment that his lies and his accusations over God's people no longer had any claim. It was the moment his accusations became lies. When he said, this person has sinned. They don't deserve you. They are cut off from you. The cross says they are under the blood of Christ and they are mine. On the cross, Jesus not only expels sin and Satan, but he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Our sin that has defiled the image of God is forgiven and washed away. The reason that your past has no claim on your future is the cross. What you were is no more. Christ has washed you clean, restored you to exactly what he wants you to be, not just an image bearer of God, not just someone made in God's image, but a human being who by God's grace is being conformed to the image of his son. You are becoming like Jesus more and more every single day. See, often the fear that prevents us from confessing our sin to Jesus is that he will drive us away. Sometimes your fear in confessing sin to another brother or sister in Christ or to your spouse is the fear that they will drive you away. But that's not the gospel. The gospel says that if we confess our sin to Jesus, that he drives it as far as the east is from the west. He drives our sin away so that we can remain with him. Jesus brings us near, unites us to him. So then church, what does this Jesus, the son of the most high God, have to do with us? Absolutely everything. He made you. He loves you. And though we have been corrupted by sin, he cleanses us and brings us into his righteousness. He doesn't toss you aside. He wants to see the glory that you were made for fulfilled in your life by his power. And so all who've experienced this Power and presence of Jesus like this man in our text are invited not just to enjoy that, to receive that, but to go and share what Jesus has done for you, to tell everyone. Though this man is prevented from getting into the boat with Jesus, he's still invited into the same work that the apostles would eventually be invited into. He says, go and tell. Go to your friends and tell them all that the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And so maybe you're brand new at this, or maybe you've been a Christian for a while. We all have the same mission. We've got the same mission to go and tell all that Jesus has done for us and all that he has done to show us mercy. If Jesus has saved you, then you have a story to tell. This man in the text had a story to tell, and everyone came, and though fearful and drove Jesus away, they, they, they marveled. They were amazed by what God has done. And if you have been saved by Jesus, then you have a story to tell. Oftentimes we can sit and think, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to give them. What do I have? You've got Jesus. Give them Jesus. Tell them of all that the Lord has done for you and all of the mercy that he has had on you. You have been invited into the same work as the apostles. You have been sent to all that you know in Carpinteria, the coastlands, and the nations to share all that the Lord has done for you, all the mercy and compassion that he has had on you. And in doing so, in sharing the gospel... We will see the captives set free. We will see demonic powers flee from the advancing kingdom of God. We will see people marvel and we will see Jesus glorified and exalted over and above every other thing this world could ever offer. You have a story to tell. You have been redeemed. Share it with all who will listen. Let's pray together, church. Jesus, we declare your victory in this place. Jesus, we declare that you are victorious over sin, Satan, and death. God, there is nothing in our lives that will separate us from you. As Paul says, "What? No, neither height, nor depth, nor angels, nor powers, nor principalities, nor anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. God, some of us are, are, are holding on to this sin too afraid to share it because they believe you will drive them away. But God, I pray that you would remind them and comfort them and encourage them that it is not you that they drive away. You bring them near and by your presence, our sin is driven away. God, wash us clean, redeem us today, save us. If there's anyone here who does not know you, I pray that they would leave here not only knowing about you, but knowing your power and your presence and your love and your grace and your forgiveness. We pray that if anyone came in here captive by the enemy, that in the name of Jesus, you would set them free anyone who has been captive by our sin, that in the name of Jesus, you would set us free. Those sins that we have such difficulty ridding our lives of, we pray that by your presence and by your name and by your power, there is power in the name of Jesus that you would set us free. And I pray, God, that we would not only rejoice in that, but that we would be your mouthpiece to celebrate and proclaim, and to rejoice, and to tell all people of what you have done and what you can do for them. God, we love you, we pray that you would have all victory in our lives, all glory in our lives, that all of our minds and hearts, our lives, our words, our relationships, everything would be wholly and completely sold out to you, that nothing would stand in the way. God, we open our hands and we give you everything. God, I pray for those that are hearing just a counter message in their minds. Whether it's things that their friends have told them, things that they tell themselves, or things from the enemy. They're telling them that this doesn't apply to you. This man, he he talks a big game, but he doesn't know you. Jesus knows you. These are his words and not mine. In him, you can be set free. God, would you do that in us? We ask it in your name for your glory. Amen.